Hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is good to see you this morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, John 15, not 1 John 15. You'd be looking, you'd be looking for a long time for 1 John 15. John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. Yes, we are still studying the book of 1 John, um, but uh, we're going to lay a foundation to understand what Jesus says. We're turning to the words of Jesus here. And once we lay that foundation, then we're going to much more easily understand exactly what 1 John is communicating in the book of 1 John. While you're finding John chapter 15, have you ever heard someone say that Jesus is their best friend? Have you ever heard someone say that, like, Jesus is my best friend? I've, I've heard it a lot. I, I grew up in a Christian family. I attended church multiple times a week as a child and a teenager. I went to a junior high Christian, uh, a Christian junior high, a Christian high school, a Christian elementary school. And so let's just say I've heard a lot of people say that Jesus is my best friend. And I, I think I've always agreed, like as a teenager, I agreed that, that Jesus should be a Christian's best friend. And, and I think even as a teenager, I desired Jesus to be my best friend, but I don't know that I would have said that he's my best friend. Yes, I mean, I was saved, but I don't know as a teenager if I would have actually said or realized that Jesus was my best friend. Now, I think Jesus sees it differently. I'll show you that in a minute, but I didn't. But all of that changed when I went to college. I went to a college in a, at a school where I didn't know a single other student that was going there. It was out of state. Didn't know a single other student that was there. I didn't know a single person that lived in the city where the college was located. I didn't know a single person in the state where the college was located. I didn't know anybody in the 20 states surrounding the state where the college was located. I didn't know anybody. And so as a 17-year-old going off to college, it made me a little nervous but at least I was staying in the dormitories. At least I was, my roommates were going to be my friends. And so I walked down the long dormitory hallway, you know, traditional dormitory hallway, rooms on each side. I walk in my room, and I meet my two roommates. And both of them were graduating seniors, and both of them were engaged to be married. Let's just say they didn't care one bit about some scrub freshman that got shoved in their room at all. Now, I don't blame them for that. They were in a different part of life, a different time in life. They were different age, different stage, different classes, different everything. But they didn't care about me one bit. Now, I think the reason that that ultimately happened is because my last name is a Z. It starts with a Z. And we're always just getting shoved random places. Z's just, we're always the last, getting shoved at whatever's left. And so I think I just got shoved in a place that was whatever left, and they're like, eh, just put the Z in the, in the room with the two seniors. Eh, I don't care. They, they were, it's a Friday when they were making that decision. And so let's just say they, they, were not, they did not become friends of mine. And at that school, I did not know a single person. I went to classes, didn't know a single person. Went to dinner, all alone, didn't know a single person. Now, you know you're pretty lonely when a guy says out loud that he's lonely. Not too many men will admit that. But that first week of loneliness turned into two, and it turned into a month. I, I, know I had an on-campus job. I worked on campus. I worked on the grounds department, you know, taking care of the, the external ground, you know, the trees and the, and the grass and all that. And I always got, it was a large department, lots of guys worked there, but I always received from my boss the loner jobs. I, I, I didn't know why at the time, but they were always the loner jobs, the jobs that you just do all alone. One of my jobs was taking a leaf blower and blowing off the entire campus. Now, when you think of leaf blower, you're thinking of something that you hold in your hand that's gas-powered or electric, and once you mow your lawn, you blow all your grass clippings and leaves into your neighbor's yard. That's what you're thinking of. But these, these aren't that. These are like giant commercial leaf blowers on wheels. And you push them around. You wear hearing protection and you push them around. So for hours and hours and hours, days and days and days, uh, the running track, the tennis courts, the outdoor basketball courts, parking lots, just pushing that thing all around. If I wasn't doing that, I was doing one of two other things. 
one thing I was doing was scraping out the sludge off the bottom of greenhouses. Now, you didn't know this before, and I wish I didn't know this, but when you grow plants in a, in a greenhouse and you water them, the, the sludge in the pot sludges out over time, that the water carries whatever out the bottom of the pot. That's on purpose so that the, the, the plant doesn't drown itself, and so it leaks out. And so they take all the plants out of the greenhouse, they go plant them on campus, and then someone has to come by and shovel all of the gunk that came out of the bottom so that they could put new plants in there. And so guess who was the shoveler? I was the shoveler. All alone, days and days and days, weeks and weeks and weeks, shoveling alone. And so if I wasn't blowing off the campus all alone, or if I wasn't in the greenhouse all alone, they had me out in the back 40 wood chipping. The crews would be trimming trees out there. They would bring branches back, and I would just wear my hearing protection and just put, put trees in the wood chipper for hours and hours and hours and days and days and days and days. Completely alone. No one knew that I was there. I could have gone right down that chipper shooting myself and chipped myself right out the other end. No one would have cared. No one would have known. Life would have just moved on from then. And so the, the month turned into two months, turned into three months, didn't know a single person. Didn't know a person in class, didn't know a person when I ate, didn't know a single person at work. And so I began to build a friendship with someone that I had never built a friendship before. I began, as I'm wearing the hearing protection, pushing the, the leaf blowers around, I just began to talk to Jesus out loud. Like they couldn't hear what I was saying, the thing is so loud. They, they couldn't hear anything. Nobody knew that I was talking to anybody, but I was just talking to Jesus. He was the only one that would listen to me. <laughs> he was the only one to pay attention. And so I'd be in the greenhouses all alone. No one's around. And as I'm shoveling, I would just quote Bible verses that I had memorized over time. That's Jesus, you know, Scripture is Jesus talking to us. And so I'd just quote the Bible, then I'd pray again as I'm shoveling. I'd be out in the back 40 wood chipping. I'd just talk to Jesus forever. There's, no one else would listen to me, but Jesus would listen to me. And so as those months turned into multiple months, it, it turns out that Jesus ended up being literally my best friend. I'm not talking like some weird, uh, you know, spiritual, mystical, something or other. Like literally, he's the only one that cared about me. He was on my mind a lot. He's the only one that sustained me in any sort of encouragement or any sort of help. Jesus was my best friend the only friend that I had. And now that I realize in retrospect, that's why I had all of those loner jobs throughout the time was Jesus was just needing to get me to a place where I would be willing to do that. Now, since then, though, I have noticed Christians who certainly would not say that Jesus is their best friend. And usually it's because they're not even there yet. There are many Christians who are doubting their own salvation, and so they haven't even gotten to the place of, is Jesus my best friend or not? They're still at the place, am I even saved? And so here's some hallmarks, maybe you could identify if this is, something, if this is you, some hallmarks of someone who's still questioning whether they are, you don't, even, you don't know for sure. One thing that someone in a situation like this does is they are constantly repraying the salvation prayer over and over and over again, trying to prove it to yourself or trying to prove it to God or trying to prove it to somebody else. Um, just praying that prayer. So I'm not talking about prayers of confession. You know, like 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a prayer of a Christian to God, an apology prayer to God, apologizing for sin. Now, I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I'm talking about someone repraying the I'm not sure I'm saved and I want to put my faith in Jesus prayer over and over and over and over again. And then when difficulties come, problems come, you know, you lose your job or problem with the, the kids or a problem in the marriage or a medical diagnosis that you weren't experiencing. And as soon as a problem comes, then you assume that those problems are a result of you not being saved and it's God punishing you for not being saved, you assume that this is a, 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 a punishment that God has given you because you haven't been saved, as opposed to assuming that that difficulty is something that God gave you as a way of developing you to be the person that God needs you to be. That's the way that God operates, by the way, for believers, is that He believe, brings difficulty. Just last week, we, this last Wednesday and Wednesday night, we're studying through Exodus, and Moses, he was brought low. Moses was 
God, God emptied Moses to nothing. God, God humbled Moses. And he didn't humble Moses just to humiliate him and shake his finger at him and say, you're such a bad man, Moses. God brought him low so that God could lift him up. God emptied him so that it would be God would be the one that would fill him and would allow him to do the things that he ended up doing. And so that's the way that God operates for believers. But if someone's doubting their salvation, they assume that their difficulties in life are just proof that they're not really saved. So you circle back to the beginning and pray the salvation prayer over and over and over again. Or something, some weird things happen in your life and you think that you've missed the rapture. Lots of people who are questioning their salvation think that regularly. They just never admit it that they think those things. One time when I was in junior high, I was standing in my garage and I had he- I heard a sound that I had never heard before. Now in junior high, you're only 12 years old, so like there are things you haven't experienced before. But it was a sound that I had never heard before. It was this um, thumping bass that was so deep. It was oppressive. It wasn't like some low rider driving up and down the street with his bass on, you know. It wasn't a neighbor that just had their stereo turned on. It was a sound unlike any sound I had ever heard before. It was, it was impressive, but it was also up. You couldn't, you couldn't close your ears and, and all of a sudden not hear it. You could feel it in your chest. It was, it was, lit, it was coming from the sky. And I'm looking, out, looking up in the sky, what is this sound? And running through my brain is, what if this is the rapture? I'm a, I'm a Christian kid going to Christian school. What if this is the rapture? And I was concerned that I wasn't, I'm trying to jump, like, I'm not going. And so in that moment of, I don't know, fear, panic, thought, I I cry out to God, I pray to God. And as soon as I'm finishing that short little prayer, 12 military helicopters fly right over my house, about four inches off the roof of my house. They were flying from Norton Air Force Base, going somewhere, boom, and that was the sound, and I felt like an idiot. But that happens to people who are questioning. They're not sure about their salvation. They say, I'm not really sure. Or maybe you know your Bible a little better. And so you know that there will be apocalyptic things that are going to come in the, in the future, and, and it will be signs of the times. And you see some of those signs occur in our, in our climate, or some catastrophic thing occurs, or, or there's a blood moon, and you think, oh no, I've missed the rapture. Or you stop confessing your sin because you figure you're not even Christian, so why confess the sin at all? And then you, you keep sinning and sinning and sinning, and you figure that God would never save someone like you, and you don't feel like Jesus is your friend at all, and so that must be proof that you're not saved. If that's you, today is for you. If you're not sure, if you don't know for sure that you are going to heaven, that you have eternal life, today, today is for you. And maybe you kind of want Jesus to be your best friend, but you're not really sure how all of that even is. Today is for you. Hopefully by now you've found John chapter 15. And John chapter 15 and 16 and 17 is an interesting part of Scripture because it is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And it contains um, Jesus's. Um, discussion with the apostles, and then he has a discussion with God. He talks to his, his disciples, his apostles, and then he prays to God. And so after sharing some final thoughts with his apostles, we read those in a minute, he goes to prayer. And Jesus prays for three things. Maybe I should say three people. Jesus prays for himself, and then Jesus prays for his apostles or his disciples but it's the third person that you won't believe. The third person that he prays for, I don't think you could guess in a million guesses. Don't read ahead. Stop looking at your Bible. No cheating at church. <laughs> who do you think, after Jesus prays for himself the night before crucifixion, and he prays for his apostles, who do you think Jesus prays for thirdly in his prayer to God? He prays for you. And he prays for me. I mean, think of that. Of all the things that could be on Jesus' mind the night before the crucifixion, before you were even born, he's praying for you. And so what does he pray? 
two things. He prays that you would be saved and that you would be united with him, that you would be united in friendship, closeness with him forever. That's what he prays. So I want to just pick up that story a little bit. In John chapter 15, this is his discussion with the apostles before the prayer. John chapter 15, verse 12, this is what Jesus says. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Well, of course, this was prophetic of Jesus because that is exactly what Jesus was going to do. He was going to lay down his life for people that would put their faith and trust in him, that he would call their friends, his friends. And it says, no longer do I call you, referring to the apostles right in front of him, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. That's what friends do. (laughs) They share each other's lives with them, and that's exactly what Jesus had done with them. And he calls these apostles friends. Skip over in your Bibles to John chapter 17. So just flip over in your Bible, probably one page. John chapter 17. And this is after the short conversation and some instructions to the apostles. Now he goes to prayer, talking to God the Father. We'll pick it up in verse 18 of that prayer. And Jesus says, as you, referring to God the Father, sent me, Jesus, into the world, I also have sent them into the world, referring to the apostles. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in faith. So Jesus has already prayed for himself. We haven't looked at that. But here he is praying for his apostles. But now we go even further than that. Verse 20. I do not ask on behalf, of, on behalf of these alone, on only these apostles that are in front of me, but for those who believe in me through their word. Jesus is starting to pray for anybody who is saved as a result of the apostles' ministry after Jesus' death. And so any person in 2023 who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because they hear the gospel, every single one of them is saved as a result of the apostles' work. They started to spread the gospel through their churches in the first century. They wrote scripture. And so the gospel that you know, that you hear today, is a result of the apostles' work. And so Jesus isn't only praying for the apostles. He is praying for the millions of people who are going to be saved and hear the gospel after all of that. Verse 21, it says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Not only are the disciples being saved and they are friends of Jesus, now Jesus is praying for the millions of people that would be saved, experience his love because of him dying for his friends, and then becoming friends of Christ as well. Well, Jesus' prayer to God the Father here was answered. 51 days later, at a festival of Pentecost, Peter goes out and he preaches this message to all of these visitors. They're from out of town. They're from other, uh, other countries, other languages. And yet he preaches this sermon that contains this truth, the gospel of who Jesus is. And so here in Acts, I have it on the screen, is the result of preaching of that gospel 51 days after what Jesus is praying here. And it says, now, when they heard this, these are the people who were there of different countries and languages that heard the gospel from Peter, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter then said to them, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then, those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about three 
3,000 souls. God answered that prayer. 51 days later, 3,000 people were, were saved as a result of the preaching of the truth or of the gospel. And so now, immediately, those 3,000 people from different countries and different languages and different cultures, they are all now brought into one group, one body, one, one body of unity. And it is this body that Jesus is close to, is unified with, is friends with. The way that it's described in 1 Corinthians is like this, for by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. So those 3,000 were baptized into this body through God's Holy Spirit, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, the Holy Spirit. So when any person, whether 2,000 years ago, a part of those 3,000 people that were saved, or whether someone gets saved at Grace Community Church today, they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, they are all added to this one group, this one body, because we are all then changed or regenerated by God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that comes and lives inside of us at salvation. And not only is it 2,000 years ago, and everybody who's saved in this body up until now, and all of us who have put our faith in Christ, we are in this body, but every single believer who is going to ever be saved until Jesus Christ comes back in his military helicopter and takes people away, um, they are also going to be a part of this one body uh, and be friends with Jesus. Now, it's possible that you might think that there's no way that Jesus would want to be close to you, that he would not want unity with you. Because I know what our culture says about Christianity. Our culture says that God is just looking forward for ways to send people to hell. <laughs> he, just, he wants to send people to hell. He's looking for it. If you do one thing wrong, you've given him license to send you to hell, and God is eager. He's, you know, just, just you know, chomping at the bit. He's, he's licking his chops. Okay, who else can I send to hell today? But that's not the way that the Bible describes it. The Bible describes that God wants everyone to go to heaven. Then that's what Jesus prays, is that people would go to heaven, that they would be saved. And that's true from Scripture. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, probably the most famous verses on planet Earth, say this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not come into, for God did not come, sorry, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world should be saved through Him. That's why Jesus came to earth. Not to, not to send you to hell, but so that you would have the opportunity to go to heaven. Why? Because God loves people on planet earth. He loved them so much that he sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, to die on the cross for our sins because we couldn't pay for our own. The way that human beings pay for their own sin is through eternity in hell. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So, you know, uh, we have to pay for our own sin. But God sends Jesus so that anybody who puts their faith in him, anybody in the world, anybody, they could go to heaven. God wants people to go to heaven, not to hell. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says this, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men. How many men to be saved? All men. We're talking men, we're talking mankind, not just males. We're talking mankind, who desires all mankind to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is absolutely the truth the truth. That God wants everyone to hear the gospel, hear the good news of who Jesus is, and He wants them to be saved so they go to heaven instead of not saved and go to hell. That's why Jesus prayed this prayer in John 17, that His crucifixion on the cross would be effective and would, would save people as a result of the gospel that would spread through the apostles. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, his promise referring to the future times, the end times, his return, his rapture, all the things that are going to happen in the future even after that. He's not slow like rolling that out. It says, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wants people to go to heaven. Jesus wants people to go to heaven. And so that's why he is praying this prayer that you would be saved, that you would be brought close in unity with him. 
And not only that, if you keep reading in John chapter 17, verse 24, it's not just be saved and forget you. Verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also, they, the, the people they get saved from the apostles' teaching, that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Well, where's Jesus? In heaven. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And so he prays that not only would a person be saved, but they would be in heaven, united with him, so that they could get to know the real him, so that they could get to know Jesus the, the way the Father knows Jesus. Now remember, it was the religious people in the first century who rejected Jesus. And I think that's just fine, because religious people are not going to have very fun in heaven anyway. <laughs> religious people aren't even going to like heaven. But people who are sinners, people who have sinned, they are going to love heaven. If you've ever done something you shouldn't have done, if you've ever thought something you shouldn't have thought, if you've ever said something that you know you should have said, you wish you could pull it back, it was like toothpaste, you couldn't shove it back in, you are going to love heaven. Here's why. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You can identify with that. You're better than the person you're sitting next to, but you're not as good as God. That, that's the math. You, you, you've fallen short of God's glory. You might be more glorious than the person sitting next to you. You're definitely more glorious than me. But you haven't attained God's glory. And that's, that's kind of disappointing at first because that means nobody can go to heaven. And yet the words of Peter are so great when he says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. That is a great verse where we are, none of us are glorious like God. We are all unjust. You know, we're not justified. We're not perfect. God is. That who, that, that's the only people that can be in heaven are perfect, righteous, holy, just people. And so we all fall short of that, but then Jesus comes. And He dies on the cross one day later after He prays this prayer. That is the just God in the flesh that is dying for humans, so that anyone who would put their belief, their faith in Him, that, that, that death would apply in their life. And the Bible says that then in the Old Testament that people are wrapped in Jesus' robes of righteousness. It's not our own robes of righteousness. We don't stop sinning and all of a sudden become glorious. That's the eventual goal that we will be righteous and holy, but that will, won't be finished up until we get to heaven. And so we're wrapped in Jesus' robes of righteousness, and that is how someone who is a sinner can get to Heaven's going to be great, and it's going to be filled with sinners. Just think of the people that, that we're going to see when we're in heaven. Think of that demon-possessed woman who gets saved and then is one of the very first of the well-known churches of the Bible. Think of um, that IRS agent who's a thief, Zacchaeus. Man, that guy, he robbed a lot of people. Tax collector. Murderer, Paul. He's going to be in heaven. That idiot first grader who had a lot of dark hair, bushy eyebrows, big ears, put his faith in Jesus in the first grade, he's going to be there too. Guess who that is? <laughs> Heaven's going to be great. Not because of how great we are, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and he wants people to go to heaven, and that is why he prays this prayer. He wants us not just to go to heaven, but he wants us to draw close to him, and as he dies on the cross, he's dying for his friends. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a friend of Jesus, whether you feel it or know it or not, to Jesus, you are a friend of Christ. Now, that is a long foundation for 1 John. We haven't gotten to 1 John yet, okay? Now, turn in your Bibles to 1 John. Now, the hour sermon begins. Okay, so with this understanding of who Jesus is and, and His purpose um, and His passions for, for people, um, now we can understand 1 John uh, 5 a little better. We're 1 John chapter 5, we're studying verses 6 through 13. 
Very confusing passage at the beginning. Let's read 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He is testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has a Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's our passage. Now, some of these verses are really easily taken out of context, and you can make them mean whatever you want. But remember the context, the storyline in which we're reading. You just go back up to verse 1 of chapter 5 to remind ourselves of where we were last week. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Remember that? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, they are born of God. And then the rest of the passage from last week is, then they are overcomers as an aspect of that. But John knows that there are going to be some people who ask the question, well, why should I believe that Jesus is the anointed one? Why should I believe that Jesus is the Christ? that He is the Messiah. Why should I believe Him? Because remember, Gnosticism had risen within the church, and the Gnostics in the church were saying one of two things about Jesus. Either Jesus is God, not man, because after all, everything that is spiritual is righteous and holy, and anything that's physical or temporal or fleshly is evil. So either Jesus is God and not man, Or, Jesus is man and not God. And so, why should I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Because after all, if He's God, then He could not have been the man hanging on the cross. If He's God, He couldn't be that man Jesus that we saw because He was a human. And if you say, yeah, yeah, Jesus was the man, then that just means he was a good man. It means that he was a great teacher. It means that he was a really good example, but he just wasn't deity. He just wasn't God. And so John is answering the question, why would I believe that Jesus, that one that that we know of, that one that was hanging on the cross, the, the one that we heard of, how would we know that he is the Christ? that He is the anointed one, as opposed to a lot of other options. And so we get to verses 6, 7, and 8. This is the answer to that. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. (laughs) Like, what does that even mean? It's like some sort of weird code. This is the answer. Why would I believe in Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one? And he gives three examples, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And these three, th- the, the number of interpretations that you could find on the internet for interpreting this passage is, <laughs> you could probably find at least 30 interpretations of what these three words are referring to. I mean, it, it spread between probably the bottom notes and the bottom of your Bible, the commentary in the bottom of your Bible, uh, and a commentary book that you might buy for First John. 
and then the internet, which is great, but it's also really bad because it brings all the bad ideas to the same level as the good ideas. Now you're in trouble trying to filter through all that. And so you could probably find at least 30 different interpretations of what the water, the blood, and the spirit are referring to. Some say that the water is referring to the water that broke when Mary had Jesus, pointing to his, um, his humanity. Others say that the water and the blood is referring to um, when Jesus was on the cross and the soldier came with the spear and shoved the spear up into Jesus and it came up and it hit his heart and his wa- the water and the blood was separate when it came out. Some interpretations of this are the water and the blood are referring to the ordinances within a church. The water referring to baptism and the blood referring to communion, taking the cup at communion. Some people say that the spirit is referring to Jesus' human spirit as opposed to his divine spirit, and on and on and on and on. on. Like, you just go on for another 30, okay, of all these interpretations. But I want to show you, I want to tell you the right one, okay? (laughs) Remember, context does help us here because now we kind of know what we're talking about. Is Jesus the Christ or not? Some Some have believed and been born again and others have not been. That's the point of this entire book. So what, do these three, what, what are these three evidences that John gives? Well, the first one is water. This is referring to Jesus' baptism when he was first inaugurated into ministry. Uh, I have it here on the screen, Matthew 3. This is Jesus being baptized kind of at the very beginning of his public ministry. This is when he's like 30 years old, not, not when he's an infant. This is when he's 30 years old, being inaugurated into ministry. And this is what occurred at Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, that's John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and settling on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens, this is none other than God the Father himself, says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father authenticates who Jesus is. God breaches heaven and his voice comes to earth and tells everybody who is willing to listen who Jesus is. And so John in his argument is saying, if you're not sure if Jesus is the Christ, well, just look back at his baptism. God said that he's the anointed one. God said he was the one all the way back at his baptism. Just look at that. And someone might have said, well, I wasn't there for that. Okay, fine. What about the blood? Number two, the blood is another example or another uh, clarification of who Jesus is. Of course, the blood is referring to Jesus's death on the cross. Jesus said this in Matthew 26. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, describing to his apostles what was going to happen on the cross. This is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus was on the cross, his blood is pouring out. Jesus' sacrifice was different than all of the other blood sacrifices that had been um, done up until that point, all the way back from the Old Testament, uh, all the way through to the New Testament. Jesus' death was different because all of those other sacrifices could not remove sin. They just covered up the sin. But Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he pays for the sin. He is the propitiation. He is the payment for that sin. And so, as his blood is dripping out, it is the the payment that all of those other sacrifices were merely looking forward to. They're merely a, a, a sacrifice of faith, looking forward to the death of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, on the cross, and his blood is being poured out. And so, John says, well, just look at what, Je- what happened on Jesus on the cross, And this is the one that John would point out because John was the only apostle at the foot of the cross. All the other apostles, they were gone, they were running, they were hiding, they were under their bed. But John, he was at the foot of the cross. He was watching Jesus bleed out, finally die for sin. And John says, look at the cross. 
when Jesus said at the end, it is finished, he said something that the other two criminals on the other two couldn't say. The other two criminals were not a unique death in Rome. They were being punished for right reasons. They deserved what they got. But Jesus was unique because he did not deserve what he got. He's the only Roman death that didn't deserve what they got. But Jesus didn't deserve it. And so when he says, paid in, paid, when he says it is finished, he's saying it's paid in full. It, the, the, the invoice is paid. The, 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 the payment for your sin is completely done. That is what, what's happened on the cross. And John says, look at the, if you don't want to look at the baptism, look what Jesus did for us on the cross. I was there. And so someone could have said, well, I mean, I wasn't there for that either. I was hiding in my office. And so then John says, well, did you ever see Jesus do a miracle? Oh, yeah. I had free lunch that one day. Okay. Then that's the Spirit. That's God's Holy Spirit. This is how Acts describes God's Holy Spirit's role in authenticating Jesus Christ as the Christ. In Acts 10, it says this, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus was empowered by God's Holy Spirit to do all of the miracles that he did. And it was this way that God's Holy Spirit was a part of authenticating the fact that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the Christ. And so think of all of the miracles that Jesus did. The feeding of the 5,000, which wasn't just only 5,000, by the way, it was 5,000 men plus their wives and kids. Thousands of people saw these miracles, walking on water, raising people from the dead, making blind people see, and on and on and on and on and on. And the Holy Spirit was the empowerment authenticating the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And so John is saying, that this is the way that you can know that Jesus is the Christ, that, that He is the one that is the anointed one, that He is God and that He is a human being. Forget what that Gnosticism says. Yes, that Jesus that was touchable and seeable is also God. And the way that you can know that is through the water, that is baptism, what God said, through the blood of Jesus on the cross, and then through the Holy Spirit's authenticating power and all of His miracles. You can see that. People are talking about that. You know about that. And the purpose of all of this was so that people would be saved. I mean, remember what, what Jesus prayed. Look at verses 11 and 12 of 1 John 5. It says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's pretty simple. As confusing as those first verses were, that one's clear. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? As John says at the beginning, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Have you been born of God? Because when you are born of God through Christ, you are now in this body that is united with Christ in friendship, that has experienced the friendship of Christ in receiving this love as someone lays down his life for his friends. Are you a friend of Jesus? Have you put your faith in the Son? What's interesting about this verse is it's clear that every single human being has a choice. God wants people to go to heaven. Jesus wants people to go to heaven. He made a way for it to happen, but He doesn't force people to go. If you have the Son, you have this eternal life. If you do not have the Son of God, if you've not put your faith and trust in Him as your Savior, if you are not born of God, then you don't have this eternal life. It's pretty simple. Every single person here and 
In our world today, your family members, your kids, your parents, they all have a choice. They can all have the Son and have the eternal life, or they can decide not to and not have the Son and then not have eternal life. Well, what happens if they don't have the Son? Well, then you pay for your sins in eternity in hell. The wages of sin is death. So you would either pay for it on your own in hell, or you can make the decision to put your belief upon Jesus. And last week, belief just doesn't mean a mental assent like, yeah, I could believe that that could be true. Belief is heartfelt. It is entrenched in your soul that, that this is true. You'd bet, your, you'd bet your, all of your dollars on it, not just your last one. You, you, would, you, you would bet every dollar you ever had on this. You would bet your life on it that it's true. That's, that's belief. And when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, now you have the Son. Unless, of course, you don't. You haven't done that. And you choose for yourself eternity in hell to pay for your own sin. But remember, God wants people to be saved. He loves the world. Jesus wants people to be saved. After all, He was the sacrifice on the cross that made a way for their salvation. So much so, verse 13 says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Did you know that you don't have to, you don't have to wonder if you're going to heaven. You don't have to wonder when you hear a sound that you're not sure what it means and you think it might be the rapture. You don't have to wonder if you're going or not. You can know for sure. You, you don't have to hope. Well, I really hope I'm going. You don't have to hope that you're going. to. You can know. You don't have to wish yeah, you know, I really wish I could go to heaven because my grandma is there and I'd love to spend more time with my grandma. I really miss her. You don't have to wish. You can know that you're going to heaven. If someone were to ask you, if you were to die today, driving home from church on Van Beer and a truck hits you and you don't make it, and someone asks you, where will you go when you die? Will you go to heaven? Or will you go to hell? And you might say, well, I think I'm going to go to heaven. You don't have to think. You can know. You don't have to wonder. You can know. And how do you know? Do you have the Son? Have you put your faith and trust in the Son or not? Because anybody who's put your faith and trust, your belief upon Jesus... You now have the Son. You can know. And you are put into this body. You are now united, friends with Christ, because Christ has died for you, and He laid down His life for you. Jesus calls that friends. And you are now friends with Christ, even if you don't feel like it. You are a friend of Jesus. And so Jesus prayed that we all would be saved, and that we would all become his friends. Now you're wondering, okay, how in the world could Jesus, how could he be friends with millions and millions of people? How is that even possible? Well, it's because we're placed into this, this body, this group of people that he is friends with by nature of us being in that body. And so for the last 2,000 years, God has been answering that prayer. People have been putting their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And we have both groups of people in this room right here, right now. Many of you have already put your faith and trust in Jesus. You're here. You maybe didn't even realize it before, but you are a friend of Christ. And it's possible that Christ, as an aspect of who He is and wanting to develop you into a person that He wants you to be, He may bring you low. He, he may take you to, to empty places in your life. But it's not to prove to you that you aren't saved, it's to develop you into a person that is saved, to, to change the type of person that you are, to fill you up, to lift you up, to you be a type of person that God wants you to be. And here you are, you're saved. And you're a friend of God and you didn't even know it. 
And at some point in time, he may even allow you to be in a place where it forces you to be his best friend or him be your best friend. Jesus doesn't need any best friends. He's all fine all by himself, and yet he loves people. But we also have the other group in here today too, people who don't have the son. And you have the choice. God wants you to go to heaven. He's not looking forward to, to anybody in hell. God wishes that none would perish and all would come to repentance. Repentance just means changing your mind. Changing your mind about who Jesus is. And if today has finally changed your mind because you have heard the truth and it has changed your mind, then you can put your faith and trust in Him. You can believe upon Him too. Remember, it's not just a mental ascent. It's not just, I, try, I want to fix something real fast in my life and so maybe this is going to be the solution for it. It's not that. It is a indwelling conviction that that Jesus is your only hope in eternity, that, that if it weren't for Jesus, that you'd end up in hell with your own sin. But you can put your faith in Jesus. You can have the Son. You can be a friend of Jesus walking out of here today. And it's just talking to Him. It's just putting your faith in Him. So I'm going to give you the opportunity at least to do this. After a sermon like this, I can't at least not give you the opportunity the time to consider this. I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute? Just create a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. Nothing else is happening right here. And even if you already know that you're going to heaven, give the person next to you just a chance here for a sec. If you'd like to put your faith in Jesus, have your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, and Him become your friend, all you do is you talk to Him. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to say anything out loud. You don't need to walk anywhere. Jesus can read your mind. He can read your heart. So this is what you could say in the quietness of your own heart if you're not even sure what to say. Say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things I shouldn't have done. And I realize that there's an eternal payment for that in hell. And I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that He lived a perfect life, and I believe that when he died on the cross for that sin, I believe that he wasn't dying for his sin. I believe that he was dying for mine. And I put my faith, my trust, my heartfelt core belief in Jesus as my Savior. I put my eternity in in his hands. He is the only one that can rescue me. I want to know that I have eternal life. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is that God, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of you. He's the seal, the, the, the promise that He'll take your soul to heaven, but He will also be changing your life from here on out. And God, we as a church, we thank you for this. That's why we are worshiping you today. That's why we've sung these songs today about your faithfulness in our lives in this area particularly. We thank you for your provision of your Son, for your desire that we would be saved for answering your son's prayer with us personally and then for your provision in this way and telling us about all of these things. We thank you for this. We thank you for the, the truth of your Bible and Jesus' baptism and his death on the cross and the miracles that we can read about. We thank you for the salvation that comes through your son and how we've benefited from it and that we can know that we're going to heaven. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.